So if Easter was real and Jesus is alive, then what we said last week is that everything changes. And everything doesn't just change for a week. It changes for a lifetime. It changes for eternity. It it changes everything always at all times from that point forward because the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the day when God uh, broke into this world. His kingdom began. And His kingdom, the, the place where He rules and reigns, now is inside of people because His Spirit comes into our hearts. And, and, and that is increasing each and every day. And so Easter was the day that that began. And everything changed and everything changed for us. But now there's a story that continues. There's, there's a, a, a continuing narrative of how God is working and increasing His reign on the earth until in fact His glory, this is what uh, the prophets say, His glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. How how covered are the seas with water? Like completely, right? Totally. And, and, and so a day is coming when that reality will be true. A day happened that began that reality on Resurrection Sunday. We live between those two days. And we, as God's people, actually participate in the day coming. We're not the ones that do it. Jesus is the one that does it in us and He does it through us. But that day is coming and we, if we're His church, if we're His people, if we've been bought with His death and His resurrection, are the ones who get to see it come about before our very eyes. And so we're we're going back to the book of Acts because Acts is the continuing story of how God increases His reign over all the earth. And so that begins in Jerusalem where He was crucified and where He rose from the dead. And then what Jesus does, He comes to His uh, first followers and He says, you're going to be My witnesses. What were they going to be witnesses of? The resurrection. That's what they were going to bear witness to was the fact that Jesus is alive and well and He lives in us. And if you see any difference in the way that we live, it's because of Him, not because of us. And he says, so you're going to be my witnesses. It's going to start here in Jerusalem, but it, it's not going to stay here because that's not my plan. My plan is for the entire world to know that I am Lord and King, that I rose from the dead, and now all people can come to me. And so what we see is an ever-increasing circle happen from Jerusalem into Samaria and Judea, these other kind of outer bands of, of, of Israel, and, and now it's increasing even further. And so today, a really significant shift is going to happen in the story of Acts. And, and it's a story that includes all of us. How many of you here are of non-Jewish heritage? Non-Jewish heritage. So you're Gentiles. That's the, the word that the Bible uses. Um, for, for anyone of non-Jewish descent. If you're in that category, this story is about you. And it's about me. Because this is the story of God breaking into a brand new sphere of people that includes those that have never come to know what God is like before now. So it's a radical thing that happens. And it's a radical thing that includes all of us. And so we're, we're all a part of that. And what we're going to see is that a family who would have been considered what Jesus says to the ends of the earth that's, that's the, the, 
the group that he wants his grace to extend to is now going to be included in in what God is doing. And so we're going to read the story of this happening. I just want to warn you, it's a long story. It's written by a guy named Luke. Luke writes the book of Acts. Luke is a Gentile, and so he is really stoked about this story that we're going to read today. In fact, I mean, he's, he, he loves it so much, he tells parts of it twice. Like, that's how excited he is about it. And so we'll, we'll skip over some of the parts that he goes into twice. But here's what I want you to be thinking of or maybe even jotting down as we go through this, okay? Because this, this is going to form the basis of how we talk through this story. God includes a brand new people in what He's doing on the earth. And that reveals something about Him. It reveals something about those that He includes. And He reveals something about those of us that have already been brought in to His family. And so, maybe even write like three categories if you're going to write in, in, in your notes. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about those God includes? And what do we learn about those that are already included? And we're going to dialogue about each of those things, okay? So this is the story. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all of his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Now about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter, he went up to, on, on the roof of his house to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened up and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of the four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. That's a pretty strong response, right? I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. He was following the Jewish dietary laws, which said that this was part of your identity. You can't eat anything that isn't on the approved list of what you can eat. And so things like reptiles and snakes and eagles, and um, there are all kinds of things that were not included. He's seeing all these things, and God is saying, these are, these are now for you. And Peter's going, no, 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 I can't do any of those things. And so the voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, just so that Peter got the point of all of this. And immediately the sheet was taken back into heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of this vision, the men sent by Cornelius found him where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. 
They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one that you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. And then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man just as you. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Is Peter getting the point of the vision? He wasn't talking about food, right? So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent me? Sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon, and suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send a Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. And so I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Talk about an open door, right? And then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears Him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed this Jesus of Nazareth with with the Holy Spirit and power, and how He went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He is risen. But he was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one whom God appointed as both judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets, they testify about Him that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. And while Peter was still speaking these words, they don't even let the sermon end. The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. And the circumcised believers, those who were the Jewish ones, who had come with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of them being baptized with water. 
They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the Word of God. This was front page news in their day. They cannot believe that God had done this. And so when Peter went back to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. That's interesting, right? They don't welcome him. They criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. How dare you? And starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. This is where Luke repeats all this. So he tells them about the vision of the unclean food and what God said and how he had made impure things clean and how men had, had been he sent for him to go to Cornelius' house and how Peter had shared the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And the Spirit shows Peter that they really had been saved just like the Jews had. He explains all of this to them. And then in verse 16, he says this, Then I remembered that the Lord had said, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift, the same gift He gave to us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? And when they had heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. It's a great story, isn't it? It's an awesome story. And it marks a major shift in the movement of Acts, right? We've never seen this before where a non-Jewish family receives the message that comes from these believers, and then as an as a evidence of that, they receive the Holy Spirit, and they come to faith in Jesus. These non-Jewish people, and then the, the Jewish people are like, they don't even believe this is going on. It's like a, a totally new thing that God would include these people that had never been included before. Now, I would submit to you that it, it reveals a lot when someone new is included in something, right? How many of you are ever part of like a family gathering and all of a sudden like your, your kid brings their significant other to the table for a family meal? It changes stuff, doesn't it? And it reveals things. It reveals things about them. It reveals things that are in our own heart. It reveals what we actually believe about God and, and whether or not He loves to include those that are far from him. I mean, another example I think of is if you've ever been involved in, in like a life group and somebody new comes to, to group and everybody goes, well, I don't know if I want to share what's actually going on in my life now this week because I don't really trust you know, this new person that comes along. It reveal, every time there's an inclusion that happens, it reveals something of our own heart. And it reveals what, what it is that we believe about God. So I want to ask then, what, what does this story reveal when God does this work of including people? And I would say the first thing that it does is when God includes those who are far from Him, it reveals Himself. It reveals who God is. It reveals what He's like. It reveals what He's about. And so what did you pick up along the way? This is a little dialogue about this for a second. When we were going through the story. What did you learn about God? Or about Jesus? 
Yeah, he accepts everyone. Great. He doesn't show favoritism, Peter said. And like, that's like a major dawning on Peter's mind. Like, oh, my goodness. He doesn't show favoritism. We'll get into why that is, but that's a huge thing. Yeah. 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 He wants everyone to be included in his family, right? Yeah. He helps people grow. How do you see that? Yeah, right. It took three, right, to get him to go. <laughs> yeah. So he's working on, on Peter's heart, right? It's good to know like Peter, a little bit of Peter's story later on. He struggles with the same issue later on. It doesn't show up in Acts, but it shows up in Galatians. And Paul's calling him out on it and going, you still haven't gotten over this issue. You know? You're still, like, you eat with... You know, these non-Jewish people, when, when your buddies aren't around and when they come to town, you won't eat with them. What, like, do you really believe in all that Jesus has done for you, right? But it's good to know that God, like, I mean, he doesn't stop using Peter even though Peter still has this issue, right? That's God's grace to us as well. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah and it's God's grace to Peter that he would allow him to get included in his work of inclusion, right? Because it stretches and changes Peter. Yeah, just like we talked about last week, he pursues us, right? And, and we, I mean, we'll see that a little bit more with Cornelius' story, but he doesn't give up. Yeah, so his Jesus' work, when he said it's finished, he meant it, right? There's nothing else that was required uh, to for people to be included in his family now. It's Jesus plus nothing gets everything. It's, it's not Jesus plus something else. There's, no, there's nothing else in that category. Come with your nothing. Get him. Get everything. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing that before this vision that Peter had, he would have been like, well, Jop is probably as far as I go. You know? Um, I don't want to go there because, you know, ever, you know, it, the further I get away from Jerusalem, the, the less the Jewish population is going to be. Um, and so he would have seen all these roadblocks probably around that border, and God just knocked them all down in one sweep. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, he feared God enough, right, to know that you don't invite a Jewish guy to your house because he's just not going to come. Um, that's not what you did. And so I'm going to fear God over here, but uh, yeah, that just seemed like an impossibility if it weren't for God actually speaking to him and allowing that, that to open up, right? He makes no distinctions anymore, right? And that's good news to those of us that, like, almost everyone's hands was were raised. <laughs> um, that's why I said this, this story is about us. If this story didn't happen, we wouldn't be in this room today. Um, it would have changed everything, right? Um, you guys have said, you know, a, a few things. I'll just highlight what you've, you've already said. But one of the, the, the first things that just shines more than anything is that God doesn't show favoritism. He, he, he longs for everyone 
to, to be included in his family. And he's actually working towards that day when that is true. God is actively working right now towards that day when all people would be included in what? In his kingdom, in his reign, to know him and to, to live in relationship with him. Um, and this would have been a really difficult reality for, people, for Peter to swallow and the other Jewish believers at the time to swallow, which is kind of why we see them put up such a fuss when it actually happens. And it's hard for us to get our minds around why that would be. But it's because of what God said to Israel when he made Israel his people. So, so if you know the story, God, um, he, he spoke to a guy named Abraham. He said that you're going to be uh, my people. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to make from you a great nation, and, and they're going to be mine. And then that nation ultimately ends up getting enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and they're crying out to God, and God hears their cry, and he responds, and he gets them out of Egypt. And he repeats the same thing to them. He said, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And this is specifically what he says to them in Exodus 19. He says, you yourselves have seen how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So I lifted you out like, a, like an eagle lifts something out of the mud. And I brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my command or my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my what? My treasured possession. I'm going to treat you more special than, ev- than any other nation in the world. Although the whole earth is mine, don't get me wrong, everything belongs to me, um, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so the Israel and Peter and the other believers, even though Jesus had come, and, and died and risen again and said, you're going to be my witnesses even to the ends of the earth. They're all nodding their heads in agreement, but they're still remembering way back when when God said, you're special. You're, you're my chosen race, my royal priesthood. You're, you're, you're my treasured possession out of everything. And they would have been thinking to themselves, we're God's family. There's something different and unique about us. He dwells with us. But, but don't miss this. It's actually written into, uh, into Exodus 19. What did God say was the reason for Israel to be His treasured possessions? What, what was their purpose and function? Do you hear it there? It's to be a kingdom of what? Priests. What, what does a priest do? Where's a collar? No, that's not. What's, what's the function of a priest? Yes, to come into the presence of God and bring the, the presence of people before God. And so there was one priest that got to do that in a very particular way when he got to stand before God's presence. But what he was saying is, you're going to be a nation that draws other people into my presence. You're going to be a kingdom of my priests on the earth showing the world what I'm like. So when, when the other nations are wondering what is God really like, they're to look in at Israel and go, oh, I get it. He's a good God and He gives good gifts to His people and He loves them and treasures them and cherishes them. But He's also great. He's in control of everything. And, and so if you're underneath this God, you don't have to fear anything and you don't have to be in control. I mean, they were to look in at Israel and get a picture of what God was like and draw near to this God. 
And Israel was to be a nation that said, come. Come and experience what God is like here. And so God chose Israel to be His family, not because they were good, not because there was anything lovely in them, not because He was going to separate them from the earth. He chose them so that the world would know what He's like. And so that God would have a people to Himself that He would use to call out to all other people on the earth and say, come home. Come home, all you nations of the earth. So that, that, that's what we see here beginning to happen, right? God is doing that work in a new way. Another thing, I don't know if you, you mentioned this, but um, the way that God includes all the people of the earth is through Jesus as Lord and as Judge of all. Now, if if you were going to, um, like, let's just play God for a second. I know this is a bit of a dangerous thing here, but um, and you were going to break through this barrier to the Gentile people. Of all the places to do it, you choose a place called Caesarea. Essentially, what Caesarea is, is Caesar town. Caesarville. Who is Caesar? He's the guy in charge. He is the king. He is the emperor. He is the one that you don't mess with, right? He is Lord of all and judge of all. And then, so God does this work in Caesarea, in Caesarville. Who does he pick? To start with, a Roman centurion. Who do centurions work for? Thank you. <laughs> they work for Caesar. So God, he goes into a, a place that has Caesar's fingerprints all over it and chooses from that town a, a man whose job required him regularly to say this. Caesar is Lord. It would have been part of his solemn oath to protect the Roman Empire. Caesar is Lord. Who is Cornelius' Lord at the end of this story? He's got a new oath, right? Cornelius has an entirely new Lord by the end of this story. That's an amazing shift. And I think the reason that God chooses to do this here and, and with this particular person out of all the people is because He wanted no one to doubt this fact. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. He isn't content with being the Savior of a select group of people that live in a small town outside of, of, of the, the main power system. He wants to be actively working towards a day when everything is under His reign because He is the best King that there is. And He is the one who saves us and gives us new life. He is Lord. And so there, there's, a, there's this thing going on in the story where it's calling out to us and going, who, who's Lord for us? Who's Lord for you? Who has the final say? to tell you who you are. To give you your sense of worth and your sense of well-being and your sense of belonging. Who do you look to for gratification? Who do you look to for acceptance? Who do you look to 
for approval. Whatever that is, what Luke is saying is Jesus is a better Lord. He is a better God for that than whatever it is that you're looking to. And whatever it is that you're looking to, or whoever that might be, whether it's your boss or a spouse or your kids or whoever, Jesus is Lord over them too. So turn from them and turn to Him. And not only that, He's not just Lord, He's judge of all. He's the judge. In Rome, here's the way things would go. If you were considered for a crime, and it was a really bad one, um, you would go before a judge. And if it was even worse, you'd go before a higher judge. And if it was really, 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 really bad, you would stand before Caesar. And he would declare whether or not you lived or died. Everyone who was within the Roman Empire could get a decree from, from Caesar, Lord of all, you either live or you die. He could choose. No one could, ex- could, could question his ruling. And Luke wants to make it clear for us, Jesus isn't just judge of the living. He's not just, he, he isn't just the one who, who can judge over whether or not we live or die, although he has that ability because he's Lord of all. He's even judge of the dead because he has the power over death itself. And so he, he not only has the ability to say if, if those who are living might die, but he doesn't use his power to do that. He uses his power to declare people who are dead to live again. And those who have placed their faith in Jesus as Lord and as judge, then not even Caesar's decree that you might die can take away your life. Nothing can harm you anymore if you're in Jesus Christ. It's amazing, isn't it? Luke is telling us this through the story that Jesus is Lord and Judge. He has the power both to give life and even to forgive sins, which is the, the, the penalty which resulted in our own death. And so everyone, regardless of whether or not you're Caesar's subject or not, everyone is going to be judged by Him. And we, as His people, we get to be judged on the fact that we put our faith in Him in all that He has done for us. And He will be judged of His work. And we will be saved on the basis of what this Lord has done on our behalf. Not what we do for Caesar. What He does for us. And uh, I think the last thing that we learn about God is that God's Spirit's the one who prepares and draws people to Jesus. He's the one that does the work. He's the, the one who is working well in advance of us. He was working well in advance of Peter, right? God was preparing uh, Cornelius and his family for years to bring them to the point where they might experience the gospel of grace and the sending of the Spirit. For years and years and years, God was working in the lives of these people to get them ready for the day when Peter walks through their door and says, let me tell you the news that you've been waiting to hear. And folks, I... We've got to believe that we have a God that works that same very way today. Because if not, then we're hopeless. It's, I mean, everything is up to us if, if the Spirit isn't real and true and working in advance of us. 
I mean, as God's people, God, we, we need to believe that God is working well before we ever get on the scene. Well before we have relationships with our friends or with our family or in the garden or in the food pantry. That God is actually at work in the lives of those people He's prepared us to come into contact with. And, and, and it, He's also preparing Peter, right? To be able to experience something that he had never experienced before. And to depend on Him for what Peter is incapable of doing. And my question is, church, do we do that? Are we people that regularly go back to the Spirit and go, prepare me? Who is it that you're sending me to? That, that may be somebody outside of our kind of comfort zone and area of expertise. Maybe somebody you're sitting down the road from today. Jesus, you're in control. You're Lord of all. You're drawing people to Yourself. You've given Me Your Spirit. You're at work in this world because You have a plan for a day when all things are going to come underneath Your rule. What do You want Me to do? Who do You want Me to talk to? What do You want Me to say? It's really that simple. It really is. And that should give us great freedom and boldness because then we believe that He's powerful and active through us. All right, so we talked about what we learn about God. What do we learn about us? See, God includes those that are far from Him, and it reveals something about us, about who we are in our own hearts. What do we learn about Peter in the story? You guys have touched on that a little bit before, but what do we learn about him? Yeah, he's really human. (laughs) Don't fall down at my feet. Like, I'm flesh and blood just like you are, right? He picks him up. To convince who? To convince Peter. Right. Peter isn't hard-hearted at all, right? We've never seen that in his story before, right? (laughs) God seems to work in threes in his life. Because it takes three times. What did you say before, Aaron? Years and years of being, like, I'm, I'm just imagining Peter's education growing up. He would have heard Exodus 19 thousands of times. They talk about being reinforced in a worldview. I mean, he's, a, he's staunchly um, convinced before Acts 10 of what he believes. And yet, in a moment, God changes him. It's good news for us, right? Yeah, what are you? I'm legalism, if you've never heard that term before, it's all about what legal laws we fulfill in order to justify ourselves, which excludes us from grace. And Peter's forgetting that it's about grace, right? It was grace that brought him in. It's grace that's going to bring Cornelius in. Not what Peter's done. Not the laws that he's followed all of his life that brought you know him to a place where he could accept Jesus. Um, and that's a that's a lesson that we all have to learn, right? Yeah. Yeah. And to be even more fair to Peter, God we don't have any evidence that God had led him to, to go in this direction before this chapter either, you know. So this is a new experience for him entirely. Yeah. What else do we learn about him? 
Yeah, hope for our own change and then hope that God might use messed up sinners like us. Right? He, and he longs to do that. He actually, it shows off him more than it shows off us, which is a good thing. Right? We don't have much to show off apart from him. Um, yeah. And, and hopefully that builds confidence in us, right? Yeah. Um, I, I'm just thinking through, you know, what's going on in Peter's heart. A lot of what's happening with him is that, um, again, thinking back to their story as a people, that, that he forgot that God had chosen them to be his tre- treasured possession, so that God would use them as a as a conduit to reach others. And, and in other words, it just it wasn't just for them. It wasn't just for Peter and the Jewish believers and those who followed the laws and all, all the same. Um, and so I, the thing that happens, though, when, when we forget that God chooses us because of his grace and he chooses us to be a conduit to other people is that we start to think that he chose us based on something he saw in us. Right? He's either choosing us because of who he is or he's choosing us because of who we are. And when we forget that He chooses us for who He is, then we start looking at ourselves and we go, well, there must have been something good in there for Him to choose me. Which is the essence of pride. Because what that means is that we are justifying ourselves by what is good in us. And saying, God must love me, or God should love me, or God does love me. Not on the basis of who he is and what he's done, but on the basis of who I am and what I've done. What do you think are some of the byproducts of a, of a mindset that says that? Where pride is at work? What are some of the, the, the fruit of that belief in our hearts? Arrogance? Yeah, it can be. What else? Yeah, judgment, right? <laughs> judgment, right? We we would look because here's the thing: when we feel like we need to self-justify, who else do we look to in order to come to that ruling? Yeah, you got to look at somebody else and go, well, and if I'm going to justify myself, it's got to be against some standard. And the only people I see around me are the ones here, like you know the. Those that I work with, or my boss, or my neighbors, or my friends, or I mean, you compare yourself to the people that are most like you and say, yep, I'm a little bit better. Not much, just a little bit. Just enough. Just enough to be justified. Just enough for God to smile on me and see something unique in me. See how that's the essence of pride and self-justification? And it's the byproduct of what happens when we believe it's about us and about what we've done. And I think, if I'm reading this correctly, there's a little bit of that going on in Peter's heart. Because what happens when he sees all the unclean food come down on a sheet from heaven? I mean, consider where it's coming from. From heaven down to Peter, God says, eat. Peter says, eat. Uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> yeah. Surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. Read between the lines there. 
I've made myself what I am. And so, and then God brings people who Peter would have considered unclean into his life, and Peter's immediate reaction to them would be, nope, I don't eat with those people because we're better than them. See how that works its way in? And I would say this, pride and self-justification is part of all of our DNA. It's part of all of us. And, it's, and because of that, it's something that we all need to look out for in, in, in ourselves and in one another. Because we'll feel like somehow we've deserved God's favor rather than not getting what we deserved, which is death. That we don't realize what it is that we truly deserve. And what we really got was Jesus and his life for us. And pride can mask itself in a number of ways, right? It, it can mask itself as concern for other people. Oh, just tell me about life and I'll pray for you. And in our minds we're going, yep, my life's a little bit better. Or it feels that way, right? I mean, it can mask itself as self-esteem. It can mask itself as devotion to God. A number of different ways. But please know, wherever it is that we have pride in our life, wherever it is that we're basing our identity on our works and not on Jesus' work, God is opposed to us. He's opposed to us in that area. Just as he was opposed to Peter in saying, don't call things that are clean, that I've made clean, unclean. See, in Galatians 3.18, it says this, for if the inheritance depends on the law, inheritance is what you get when you're part of a family, right? You're part of a family, you get the inheritance of that family. If you're part of God's family, you get his inheritance. You get treated like sons and daughters of God. If that inheritance depends on the law, i.e. what we do for God, then it is no longer dependent upon the promise, but God in His grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So the, the founder of your faith, Peter, the guy that started it all, God chose him not because he had he would lived a really good life. God chose him in His grace. And so everyone that comes after Him, God chooses us in His grace. So in other words, we're, we're not able to inherit what comes from being part of God's family through what we do for Him. If we had to, then what He gives to us wouldn't be available to us by His grace. And so, the lesson is, stop treating other people as if they deserve less than you. Stop treating them as if they are less than you. Because they're not less than you. Treat them in accordance with how I've treated you. He goes on to say this in Galatians 3. This is uh, verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed, have clothed yourself with Christ. You get everything that comes with Him. There is neither, now because of this, neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, nor is there male or female, because you are all what? You're all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You're his children and heirs according to the promise. He's speaking to both Jews and Gentiles here. So he's saying, you're treating one another as if there's a difference, 
because you think that you're better than the people that are around you, but please treat them as I've treated you. How have I treated you? I repay my enemies by making them my dearly loved children. I clothe you with Jesus' work on your behalf. Therefore, there is no more such thing as good people and bad people, better people and worse people, other people and you. I have made you all one in Christ. And so don't forget who you are. And don't forget who you were. Lastly, we, we, we learn about them. The people that God includes. God includes those who are far from them to reveal something about them, which we've already talked about, includes all of us. So what do we learn about Cornelius and his family? What do we first learn about them? We won't spend too much time on this. but what is, He's a good guy, right? He gives to the poor. He prays a lot. Like he's, If you were to live next to Cornelius, you'd be like, that's a pretty good dude over there. You know? There's nothing wrong in his house. I mean, he treats his kids well. He's got a good relationship with his wife. He, he you know, seems to believe in God, and he does all kinds of good things. Why then? Why? Does a good guy like that need Jesus? Yeah, he's lost without him. The message, I, I don't know if you picked up on this, but it's not enough to believe in God and be a good person. That's shocking to some of us. Right? Because we encounter people all the time, and maybe we would put ourselves in that category where we go, yep, I believe that God exists. And I try to pray and I try to do good stuff and I try to be a good neighbor and, and you know, I'm working really hard to provide for my kids and my family. I'm just trying to be a good person. But the, 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 the story, what Luke is telling us is you need to actually receive Jesus in order to belong to Him. So why, why would we say that? Someone who fears God and does good things still actually needs Jesus. It's because of what Jesus does for us. See, the, the options are we can either be justified by the things that we do or we can be justified in a, in a just right standing before God based on what Jesus does. So back to Galatians 3, if we look a little bit before the, what we just looked at in verse 10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a what? A curse. Everyone who relies on their own good standing before God. Everyone who looks to their own good deeds to justify themselves. They receive for that a curse. It is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. So if you're going to go the route of trying to be justified by your own goodness, here's how you'll have to do it. This is is the only way to do it. If you're going to go this route, you've got to go all the way. Take every requirement that God gives you in, in the entire book of the law. There's over 200 of them. Multiply that by every day of your life from now until you die. 
and get a perfect score. Every day, every command, all the time, never fail. If you're going to go that route, that's what you need to do. You see why it results in a curse? Because you'll be cursed if you try to do that. And you'll never measure up. It's impossible. What do the righteous do instead? What does he say at the end? The righteous live by what? By faith. And that's not just another form of works. That's not just another way to say, well, I'm going to stop doing these good things and I'm going to be a person that has faith. And and it's my faith that will result in my justification. No, people who have faith are ones who rely on what God has done for them rather than what they do for themselves. That's what it means to live by faith, is to trust in what Jesus has done for us so that we are justified before God. And rather than a curse, that results in our blessing. And this is what Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. From the curse of trying to live up every day of our lives and fulfill every law He relieved that need. How did He do it? By becoming the curse for us. He became the curse. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He took what you and I deserve so that we who were cursed could receive what He deserves. And so, what that means is it's as if we had lived the life that Jesus did and deserved all the inheritance that comes along with being God's Son. It's all yours if you're in Him. Because He became what we deserve. And He lived the life that we should have but did not. And when that happens for us, man, everything changes, right? We start trusting in Him. We start believing in Him. We start looking to Him. And what the other thing that happens is that we start looking to other people and asking them to come in because we know that what was available for us is available for them. Church, do you believe that? Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that Jesus took everything that we deserve and that we got all that He deserved? Jesus, He was the one who was put to death outside the city as a criminal so that criminals like us could be counted innocent. He was the one who was treated like an orphan on the cross so that enemies like us could be loved as dear children. He was the one who became a citizen of no country, rejected by his own people so that we who had no citizenship could become citizens of heaven. It's now true of you because of him. I'm going to end with this story because I think it highlights it pretty well. Um, There's a poem written on the inside of the Statue of Liberty. How many of you have ever visited the Statue of Liberty and seen the poem that's written on the inside? It's a great uh, actual illustration of of the Gospel. I don't know if you realize that. Um, If you haven't seen it or read it before, this is what it says on the inside. Statue of Liberty stands as a monument looking out at the oceans and saying this. And the Statue of Liberty goes by another name, which is the Mother of Exiles. 
And the mother of exile says this, keep ancient lands, keep for yourself your storied pomp. What's that mean? Your, your, your really great people, the ones with all the education and all the experience and all the wealth, the ones who are great folks and citizens, keep them all. Keep your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me, this is the part you've heard, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, the tempest-tossed to me, and I will lift my lamp beside the golden door. Do you hear that? Statue of Liberty stands looking out at the nations and going, send me your worst, and you watch what this nation will make of them. Folks, that is the gospel. That's what we see in Cornelius' life. Jesus is standing at the gate of the nations going, send me your worst. Send me the ones with no hope. Send me the ones who do not believe in themselves. Send me the ones who have been written off by every nation in the world. Send me those folks and you watch what I'll do with their lives. It's going to be amazing. Folks, I don't know if you realize this, but that's us. Right? We are those people. We are the ones who don't have confidence in ourselves. We have confidence in Jesus. And we are the ones who get to watch what He makes of our life. And then we get to be the ones that stand at the shore of this kingdom looking out at the nations and going, come on home and watch what Jesus can do in your life. I hope we believe that, folks. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, God, that we were included. We who were once far from You have been brought near because of the blood of Jesus Christ shed on our behalf. And so we trust You because of that. And we see in the story that when that happens for Cornelius, they break out in praise and worship because they understand the gravity of what You've done for them. Not only that, but those who've been included for a long time, we even see them break out in worship and go, how amazing is God that He did this great thing? So I pray for us, Lord, that as we think about these things, as we're changed by them, that it would result in us putting more confidence in You and giving You more praise than we did yesterday. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.